0: Amen. All right, have a seat. If you got a Bible, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today. Uh, We're continuing the the, the series. I know it's been a little different with kind of what David and I have been doing, but continuing the series, calling who we are. We were walking through our our core values. And before I really start preaching, let me welcome you again, and let me just kind of preface this just with one uh, explanation, okay? So at a point in the message... Kind of uh, fairly, early, relatively early on, uh, I'm going to uh, kind of explain to you how that you can be forgiven of your sins, how you can become a Christian, you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, and and, and I want to encourage you if you're not a Christian and God speaks to you, and, and, and you need to respond to him, don't wait till the end. You're invited and encouraged just to get up, to walk out into the lobby, to go to the connection desk, and there's somebody there who can talk you through that, okay? The other thing is, you know, when uh, we do a service, when I preach, uh, I always... Preach for some kind of response, but we don't really necessarily uh, always, or really even that often, do kind of an old school come forward kind of invitation. If we're going to do that at the end this morning. we are gonna invite you to come and pray, and, and I just want to kind of go ahead and, and put this in your mind. I mean, I'll be here. There are people around if you. Want to talk, want to talk to them, but if you just want to come and pray and you be alone with God, you come to this side, my right, your left. Uh, of the front of the stage here. If you want somebody to pray with you, and I'll remind you of this at the end, you come to this side, my left, your right, and that will indicate that you want somebody uh, to pray uh, with you. So, one of our core values says that uh, we're a place where it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And I'm going to try to unpack what I mean by that. Clearly, it's it's a metaphor. It came out of several years ago, I preached a a message from the passage in Luke chapter 19 about Zacchaeus, uh, about this, and we ended up adopting it as one of our core values. I think it fits with their mission statement, uh, which says we meet people where they are and help them become fully devoted followers of Christ, but... I want to start with this, so there's been a lot of talk about revival, I wrote something about it this past week, and, and, and that kind of thing, and I kind of want to relate it to what I'm talking about today. When we talk about re- revival, and, and that's like a human term, it's not necessarily a, a biblical term, but I think it describes a, a biblical concept. The Bible teaches us that before we're in Christ, spiritually, we're dead, So if if you're not a Christian, spiritually what you need is a resurrection... Uh, through uh, the finished work of Jesus Christ that we sang about, because the Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Then once we get saved, once we meet Jesus, we're spiritually alive. But the idea of of revive, the root of that word is vive, which the root is, it means life. There's a word, we don't use it a lot. Vivify, it means to make something alive. So the idea of revive would be to make something alive again. And it's not literally accurate, but the idea is this. If we're not walking with the Lord, if there's parts of our lives that aren't surrendered uh, to Him, if we're struggling spiritually, if there's sin in, in our lives, if we're somehow quenching the Holy Spirit, we need to be revived in the sense that uh, th- there's a sense in which there's parts of our lives spiritually that need to be uh, you know made alive, vivified, uh, in a sense, uh, again. And so that's what we're talking about uh, as, as we talk about revival. But but here's the thing. You know, there, there have been times in our history, times in the history of the world, and, and time will tell if this is the beginning of something like that in these days where God has done something special and supernatural, and, and there has been just this supernatural uh, manifestation of His presence and, and, and outpouring of His Spirit. As people get convicted, as people get right with him, and so on and so forth. And you say, How do you know when that's happening? Well, the the time will tell, and the proof will be the fruit of it. Because when that's happened in the past, large numbers of people's lives have been radically transformed. Either Christians getting right with God, and then it's spreading into awakening in the culture as a lot of people get saved. But, That, in a sense, is up to God, but the reality is that we as believers are called day in and day out to walk with Christ, to be filled with the Spirit, to live under the control of the Holy Spirit, and that is the normal Christian life, and if we're not living that way, or let me rephrase, when we don't live that way, at that point, we need to repent and be revived. And and, and so, uh, how that relates to what we're talking about today, when I say it's okay to not be okay, I don't literally mean that. I'm not in any way justifying sin. I'm not saying it's good where we fall short. I'm not saying our brokenness is a positive thing. But the idea of it is, let's just be honest about it. We're not okay. Right? We don't have it all together. And it's okay to admit that. It's just not okay to cover it up and stay stuck in it. Every one of us, even you know, if we could identify who is the godliest person in, in, in this room, that person is still battling his or her, probably her, uh, flesh um, every day. Um, it's probably not one of us, guys. Let's just be real. Uh, I, I mean, each and every one of us—we we, to use the celebrate recovery language—we have hurts, habits, and hang-ups. We are are are—we live in a fallen world. We're fallen people. We're not glorified in, in in heaven yet. So, our sanctification, our spiritual growth, is is a battle. And so all of that leads into the question at hand today of how do we deal with sin in our lives? How do we handle it when we see sin in the church or sin in the lives of of people that we're close to? How do we handle it? How do we as the church deal with sin in the culture or, or, or sin amongst Non-Christians, I mean, how how do we answer those questions? Well, we had an experience one time, we were on staff at a church in Raleigh, North Carolina when we were in seminary, and we discovered that our minister of music was a thief, and he was stealing from a Christian bookstore he was working at, Uh, that kind of spilled over in some ways into the church, it's a long story that I don't have time to get into, but basically, the Christian bookstore said neither one of us need the publicity. I mean, what he had done was a felony. We don't want to report it to police. If you'll deal with it as a church, uh, then we won't do that. And so we had to deal with it. Our pastor was away on an extended vacation. He was communicating about it, but kind of to a large degree, the staff had to figure it out. Uh, you know, in addition to being in seminary, I also worked at a restaurant at that time. And you know, in addition to being on staff at this church, because apparently sleep is optional when you're 23. But, uh, but uh, and, and I'm just kind of freaking out like what do we do about this, this kind of thing and then one day I'm working there's a thought that popped into my mind I think it was the Holy Spirit because I don't think it came from my brain it definitely did not come from Satan but what I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me was have you ever thought about looking in the Bible <laughs> so um, that's where this comes from what we're going to look at uh, today Looking into 1 Corinthians 5, and so basically what we're going to do is we're just going to read through it, and I'm kind of going to give you some uh, explanation of of the text. It's a text that's particularly about church discipline, but I'm going to more look at it from the 40,000-foot view particularly as it applies to the, uh, the, the core value at hand. If you want to learn more about where we are, uh, how we practice church discipline, those kind of things, sign up for the Discovering True Life class next week. Let me say one other thing before we read the text. I don't know if you've ever heard this saying before. You ever heard the saying, you can fall in the ditch on either side of the road? You heard that a couple times. There's a preacher that I really like that likes to say that a lot. So this is one of these issues where you can fall into the ditch on either side of the road. And and, and this is what I mean. The Bible says in John chapter 1 that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Of course, Jesus was the God-man. He was perfect. And so he could pull off being 100% grace and 100% truth. We struggle with that. I think each and every one of us, based on how we're wired, has a tendency either to lean toward the grace side or to lean toward the truth side. And if we're all truth, we can fall in the ditch on that side of the road where we kind of use the Bible and our faith as kind of like a club to beat people up with. But if we're all grace, we can fall into the ditch on that side of the road. We were kind of like, God understands you. You know, you just do you and he'll meet you where you are and he understands and he'll be okay with that. And uh, you know, it's it's easy to fall into the ditch of uh, over here of compromise and of worldliness and, 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 and kind of being a church where anything goes. And, you know, easy way to grow a church is be all grace. I mean you can get numbers by doing that. Or it's easy to be over here in in this ditch and be moralistic, legalistic, uh, beating up the world, uh, you know, complaining about how bad non-Christians are, uh, you know, gossiping about people in the church. But what I want us to see today, and it's not easy, is that we're called to be people of grace and truth. We're called to Proclaim the law in order to accurately proclaim the gospel to non-Christians. We're called to uphold and never compromise God's standards for Christians, for church members, but at the same time to offer grace. But to understand, you can't separate grace from truth. You can't separate salvation and forgiveness from repentance. And to keep these two things wedded together and not separate them and not get in the ditch. A lot of churches are in these ditches. We need to stay out of these ditches. So, this is what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, which is not shocking in and of itself. I'm, I'm operating under the assumption because I don't, I'm not naive that if we knew everything about everyone who's a part of True Life Church, that we would say it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. But he says this one's kind of different because he says it's such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. In other words, he's saying not even the pagans act this way, and you got it going on at the church. He's saying what what he's talking about here was actually illegal, even according to Roman law. And he says the situation is that a man... And, and we know from all the context of this, he's talking about a man who's a member of the church at Corinth. I mean, if you think the Bible doesn't deal with real life issues, this is an absolute real life issue that was reported to Paul. He says, what's going on is you have a man in your church that has his father's Wife. And so, what Paul is saying is this is sexually immoral, but it's not just, I mean, it's not, you know, he's fornicating, but it's beyond that. It's not technically, biologically incest, but it's functionally incest because he's having sex with his stepmother. That's what the text means. And um, and, and it's like, man, this is so bad that these people don't even do it. And, you know, I think when uh, the world hears about sex abuse scandals in the church or things like Ravi Zacharias and that kind of stuff getting covered up and it not being dealt with in truth biblically, no wonder people are dismissing the church. I mean, it's a similar kind of situation. And it's like, I mean, if Paul were here, he would say, how can you not deal with this kind of stuff? How can you be okay with these kind of things? But I want you to notice in this particular text, he's not addressing the man who's in sin. This isn't who he's fussing at. He's fussing at the church body. Because look what he says in verse 2. He says, you're puffed up. You're prideful and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. The idea of, of church discipline, just in a nutshell, I mean, the, the, the writings of Paul amplify it, but it goes back to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18. Church discipline is not practiced over a particular sin. It's ultimately practiced over a lack of repentance and and, and, and rebellion um, because the goal is repentance that leads to restoration. But what Paul's going to teach in this text is if someone doesn't repent and, and they're n- n- claiming to be a believer and they're a, m- a member of the church, that you ultimately have to confront them, try to lovingly restore them. But if they are hard-hearted and hard-headed, at that point it's questionable whether or not they're even a Christian. And so you can't let them be a member of the church. You can't treat them like a fellow believer, again, to try to pr- provoke repentance, but also to protect the testimony of the church and for the sake of the glory of God and so he says here you're prideful you've not taken the action to deal with this what you should have done is you should have mourned over his sin when we see a Christian fellow believer struggling what's our response do we condemn them do we talk about them do we compare ourselves to them? Do we gloat? Or, on the other hand, do we minimize it? Do we excuse it? Or do we mourn over it? Does it grieve us? Listen, if we're not grieved over our own sin, we're probably not going to be grieved over anybody else's sin. What I can almost guarantee you, and I've seen this as a pastor. If you have a besetting sin in your life that you're not repenting of, you're probably not going to uh, be able to restore anybody else because you're probably going to excuse them because you're excusing yourself. So here's what Paul says. He says, For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged. What? I thought we were never supposed to judge. Paul says he's already judged. One of the biggest myths about the Bible is that the Bible teaches us not to judge. The Bible teaches us not to condemn, but Paul says elsewhere in, in 1 Corinthians that we're, we who are spiritual are to discern all things. Listen, his point here, and you'll see this by the time we get to the end, is not to condemn this person, it's to rescue this person, it's to protect the church. I mean, the the first time we ever practiced church discipline all the way through to its final step at True Life was a a lady who was living a double life, who was married to someone here and engaged to someone in another state. And until her husband discovered it, uh, neither her family or the man that she was engaged to in another state knew about it. Now, if you don't address that, you're basically saying anything goes at that point. And listen, if if you say, oh, you're being mean to her, but what about the victims? What about her husband and her kids? So he says, I've already judged him who has so done this deed. And he tells them, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And that's a picture of the final (coughs) step of church discipline. Uh, of saying, you know, you can't be a part of this fellowship, uh, if you don't repent, uh, you know, you're not under the the protection of the church spiritually or of the Lord, uh, those kind of things. And then he says, your glorying is not good. He says, do you not know that a little leaven, which is a symbol of evil, leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. And and, and what he's saying here is essential to understanding the whole passage. That is, sin, if it's not dealt with, spreads. It infects. It permeates. It, It ruins the whole thing. But what lies under that theologically is this idea Jesus did not just uh, die for us to give us a fire insurance policy and a do not pass, uh, go free ticket uh, to heaven. Jesus died to justify us, to forgive us of all of our sins, past, present, and future. But he also died to sanctify us, to cleanse us, to remake us in his image as a new creation, as a child of God. He didn't die for us, for us to keep living the same mess of a life that we've been living. Again, the Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance. So he says in in verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then he switches gears just a little bit. And this is essential to understanding the, the core value that I want to try to unpack for us. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. But then he says yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. He says but now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, you deal with sin in the church. Let God deal with those who aren't saved yet. So if you've ever heard me or someone at True Life say that, we don't expect non-Christians to act, think or believe like Christians, and when people do that, it's not the gospel, it's moralism. That well, I mean, there's other things that it's based on, but at its core, it's based on these verses. And I would say that the average church gets this completely backwards because how much preaching do you hear that's condemning the world or condemning Hollywood or the Internet or or talking about stuff at the Grammys or talking about the government and and, and those kind of things. Listen, uh, you don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. We need to deal with sin within the church body. The Bible says, let judgment begin at the house of the Lord. And so, based on all of that, our core value is that we're a place where it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And what what we mean is, we want people to come as they are. Listen, if you're not a Christian, we're not asking you to change your lifestyle or to change anything. We're asking you to consider the gospel and knowing that if Jesus saves you, he is going to change you from the inside out. But, those of us who are saved, listen, don't expect any of us to be perfect or anything like it. But, we are biblically expected and we're called to spur one another on in this to be continually in the process of becoming more like Jesus. That's the idea. And again, this is a metaphor. I hope from everything you said, you've heard me say, and in just reading this passage, there's no excuse for sin. it's the opposite of that. But what I want to try to help us to do today is to just get set free to admit. That we're not okay, that we don't have it together, that what we need is Jesus, and we can come to Him, and we can come to each other, and we can be transformed by Him in community, which is the idea of the New Testament, which is what it means to be the church. So, just four statements uh, about this, and i got to go quickly, but I'll probably spend more time on the first one than the others. But So, what this is saying, it's okay for non-Christians to not be okay. Now, I don't mean that literally in, in, in the eyes, of in, in the sight of God. I'm talking about towards Christians. And again, I think a lot of times believers, Christians, get this exactly backwards. A lot of preaching is judging, is condemning uh, non-Christians instead of dealing with sin in the church. Of course, it's a whole lot easier to preach uh, against imaginary people out there than to challenge people that are sitting face-to-face in front of you, right? But, you know, it's just some of the things that we do. Like, you know, Ellen DeGeneres, I I don't think her, her, her... talk show is on anymore but she's you know well known as an open practicing uh, lesbian have you ever heard uh, Christians make jokes and about that and call her Ellen degenerate I mean that's really going to show people the love of Christ right I, I mean how does that help anybody or anything how does that point people to Jesus how does that say he loves you come and be forgiven That kind of thing. So again, we as Christians are not to judge non-Christians. But listen, if you haven't given your life to Christ yet, I don't want you to misunderstand this. The fact that we're not your judge does not mean that you don't have a judge. Listen, let's go back to the Acts 17 passage for a second that we've been in for the last few weeks. God says there that he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from The dead. In other words, there's somebody who came and died for you, and he rose from the dead, proving he's the Son of God, proving he's the Savior of the world. You don't have to answer to me, but someday you're going to have to answer to him. You may say, well, I I don't like all this judgment stuff. Really? I don't buy that. I don't buy that from anybody. Let's say someone in your family. Someone in your family is in a wreck where a drunk driver hits them. They are injured. They go to court. We've got a judge in the room, Will Roach. Will would never do this, but let's say they're in Will's court, and and the person uh, before him bribes him. The person who committed the DUI, he lets them off. Or that person is his friend, or, or, or something like that. He lets that person off i guarantee you at that moment you're looking for judgment you're crying out everything that is within you is going to cry out for justice and because of that I believe that what the Bible says about God being our judge is absolutely true. We are wired to want justice because we're made in the image of a just God. And at the end of the day, if there's going to be justice, there has to be a final judgment because there sure ain't a ju- justice that's coming in everything on the earth. I mean, let, let, let's be real. You want justice. And so don't use that argument. Sometimes people will say, well, what about all these Christians who are hypocrites? Can I just encourage you to to not use that as your excuse either? Why? Because it's not about Christians, it's about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, number one. Number two, a lot of those Christians that you think are hypocrites aren't actually Christians. Number three, uh, you know, sometimes we see a snapshot of people that's not the whole story. Maybe you saw them on their worst day. Maybe that's not who they really are. I mean, I used an illustration one time when I was preaching about hypocrisy of, uh, well, you know, Susan Adams was my first assistant in a uh, children's ministry for 10 years, worked together for 10 years. One of the things that blesses me, when Susan sees me now, she will come and hug me. But the, the example I used of one time when um, I. I mean, there was something that was wrong that needed to be corrected, but I handled it in the wrong way. I was harsh with her. I was mean to Susan Adams, which if you know Susan, that's like in and of itself qualifies you for hell. Just that, <laughs> that, that, that one thing. And, and, um, but that was the only cross words we ever had in 10 years of working together. I apologize to her. I, I'm, I'm sharing it publicly. Uh, I mean, we have a wonderful relationship. I sinned, but that doesn't make me a hypocrite. You am saying there's a difference in being a sinner and a hypocrite. Everybody's a sinner. A hypocrite is somebody that's not honest about it, that's hiding it, that's putting on a mask. So maybe you just saw somebody at their worst moment, or maybe this is the deal. Maybe you think somebody doesn't have it all together. And maybe on a scale of one to ten as a human being, maybe they're not a nine, maybe they're a four. But you don't know, maybe they were a one before they met Jesus, and the people closest to them are like, Praise Jesus! I mean, they're, they're excited <laughs> about what the Lord's doing in their life. So don't use other people as an excuse. But, but can I, and, and, and don't act like Christians are the only people that's ju- that are judgmental, everybody's judgmental. That doesn't make it right, but, I mean, think about cancel culture. I mean, David gave some examples of this last week. It is different in different parts of the country, but, I mean, you go some places and, like, say that, uh, you know, every baby in utero is a living human being from the moment of conception, and so, uh, you know, killing that child is murder, you'll get canceled. You know, if you you say that uh, gender is not a... A psychological or sociological uh, construct but it's a fixed biological reality that'll get you in trouble in some places uh, if, if you question climate change uh, that'll get you in trouble in, in some places and uh, which I'm not getting into that issue but uh, <laughs> but I mean you can just go down the list whatever it may be you know I mean Bruce Jenner was like the poster child for transgenderism But then he got canceled when he ran for governor in California and they thought his economic policies were too conservative. And so he got canceled. I mean, if he's getting canceled, who's immune? But this is the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ the son of God left heaven and came to earth and lived as a man but he went to the cross he was canceled for our sins and he cancels our sins the bible tells us in colossians 2:13 and 14 by nailing them to the cross in his own person he cancels our sins without canceling us and only he does that and so If you're not a Christian, realize God is your judge. But the good news is is God the Son came and took that judgment upon you. I mean, think about it. The Gospels, like if Will sentenced somebody to prison and then he stood up, took off his judge's robe, walked around to the guy and said, I'll serve your sentence for you. That's what Jesus did for us. And so God says, repent, come to me, trust me. Let me forgive you. Let me change your life. I mean, it's like the woman calling adultery. Jesus said, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Zacchaeus, Jesus saved him. He said, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. But then Zacchaeus went and repented and made restitution because it's not just a fire insurance policy. It's a changed life. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. So If you have questions about becoming a Christian, like I said, just feel free to walk back in the lobby and talk to somebody back there. But let me talk to Christians for a minute. This is the second statement I want to make. It's not okay for us as believers to be okay with not being okay. That's what this text is saying. Let me go ahead and just give you the third statement because they go together. It's not okay for the church to be okay with church members not being okay. You know, to, to the church, God would say in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. To restore means to restore to wholeness. In secular Greek, it was used of a fisherman mending a broken net or a doctor setting a broken bone. That's what we're called to with each other. If we see someone struggling, hurting, sinning, we're called to come alongside of them and to seek to restore them. I'm saying, yes, as a church, but I'm talking to you Just as an individual believer, if there are people in your sphere that that's what's going on, just don't ignore it in the name of love or tolerance or or whatever else. You know, sometimes we need people to talk some sense into us. 14 years ago, I tore my ACL and I was trying not to have surgery. And Charlie Gibson, who had been through it, sat me down and talked some sense into me. And so I got restored to wholeness because I was smart enough to have the surgery. I appreciate him doing that. Sometimes that's what we need to do with people spiritually. You see, like I said before, the secondary idea of of church discipline is protection, but the primary goal is restoration. When I've talked about this before, I've used an example of uh, a young man who was in our youth group. In his last year of seminary, he committed adultery. His church, a church in Morristown, the pastor for the first time in probably close to uh, decades, Led them to actually practice church discipline all the way through uh, to the final step of disfellowshipping him from membership. But eventually God used that to prick his heart and to bring him to repentance and restoration to the Lord, to the church, to his wife. And that man is now on staff at that church. That's the idea of this. So we're to walk with each other. But listen. If we're a Christian, we're not always okay. Let's not pretend like we are. But again, let's not excuse it and not recognize and realize that God calls us to be different. He calls us to a transformed life as a believer. Uh, Josh Charles did a testimony here a few years ago. And and he quoted a man who had gotten saved in jail who said this. He says, if if you is what you was, then you ain't. Now, if you're an eighth-grade English teacher, that's gonna kill you, but it's good theology. What he's saying is, if you are the same as you were before you said you got saved, you're not actually saved. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. And then last thing though, it's okay for Christians to admit that we're not okay. Here's what the Bible says, Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. First John 1, 5, this is the message that we have heard and that we declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we, walk, we have fellowship with him and we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, the literal translation of be, is continually cleansing us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess and to repent, to bring our darkness into the light. James 5.16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Sometimes we can't do it alone. We need somebody to walk with us in it. And then last, I think it's important that we end with this. You know, when we talk about something like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we call them books. They really weren't books, they were letters that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to the church in Corinth. Now, if you read First Corinthians, you know that uh, the Corinth was not exactly the model church of the New Testament. This was only a, one of a series of questions and issues and problems that Paul was dealing with with them. But... Apparently they listened to him. They carried this out. And then we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 what happened. 2 Corinthians 2:6 says, "This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man." so that, on the contrary, you ought to rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Do you hear that? He repented. The Lord forgave him. So, Paul said to them, You forgive him. You comfort him. You show your love to Him. You welcome Him back with open arms. Because that's the point of it all. It's not okay. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. Don't stay stuck in our sin. Don't stay stuck in our darkness. Be honest. Confess. Repent. Bring it to the cross. Listen, Jesus died us. He, he died to forgive us. He died to transform us. Grace saves. Grace uh, changes us. We have the Holy Spirit who will fill us. But if we're proud and holding on to sin, we're going to miss out on God's best for us. Listen, we're going to fight a battle with sin till the day we step into heaven. But the issue is, are we fighting that battle? Are we just surrendering to it? Are we fighting the battle? Maybe the issue for some of us is you're trying to fight it alone. and You need to be honest and some people come alongside you. Some of you, maybe you need to be honest and just admit, hey, I've never really truly surrendered to Christ. And need to be saved. Listen, for all of us, I'll close with this. I think about the parable of the prodigal son. And I think about that young man who in essence said to his father, I wish you were dead. Give me my stuff now. And of course, the Bible, Jesus, you know, he went into this far country and he wasted it and you know, he's a Jewish boy feeding pigs and eating the pig slop basically. And then it says that one day he came to himself. He, he had a realization. This is not how I'm supposed to be living. Maybe God's putting that in some of your hearts and your minds right now. And he says, you know, I'm going to arise and I'm going to go back to my father. And maybe he'll take me back as one of his hired servants. But you know what the most amazing part of the story is? The Bible says the father saw him from a long distance off. He was looking. The Bible says he ran to him. And That's a picture of just how lavish the grace and the mercy of God is because older men didn't run in that society. The neighbors would have been making fun of him for running to this prodigal boy who wished he was dead. And he welcomed him back, not as a servant, but as a son. He threw a party, killed a fatted calf, put a robe and sandals on him. The older son got mad about it. Why? Because he was just as lost as the the other son. He's a picture of the Pharisees. He's a picture of self-righteous religion. You can be as lost in the church as you can in the nightclub. That's the reality. And so for all of us, the invitation is to come to the Father where grace abounds through the finished work of his son on the cross. Let's pray. You Come on. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus now, Lord, that you would bring conviction upon us where it's needed. Lord, I pray, though, God, that you would give us the grace, Lord, just to humble ourselves and to be honest about our sins and our struggles. And God, to respond to you in whatever ways we need to. God, I just pray that you pour out your grace and your mercy. Jesus, you invite us to come to your throne of grace where there's grace and mercy to help in the time of need. So, Jesus, we ask for grace. I just pray for the working of the Spirit to draw people to yourself. Lord, help us to be who we need to be for each other. We pray these things in Jesus' name. So, we would let's stand. Shane's gonna lead us in a song again. If you just wanna come pray by yourself,